You are listening to the Photo Bomb podcast with the world's greatest photographers, Boo Ray and Gary. Welcome to the Photo Bomb podcast. My name is Boo Ray Perry, and joining me as always is Gary Hughes. Well, hello. How are you today? I am good. Uh, as we record this, I'll be getting in the car tomorrow to head up to Georgia, and as this comes out, I'm in Georgia. Uh, teaching at the uh, Georgia Convention. I'm not going to bother to promote it at this point because if you're hearing this now, it's too late. <laughs> you missed it. You done already missed yes, it. You done missed it, but that's where I am uh, right now, probably. Uh, what day are you? What this. day are you speaking? Uh, Sunday. So actually, I spoke yesterday. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure you were great. I was I'm awesome. Sure you, were, you were great, man. There's I was no incredible. way you were great. So informative. <laughs> so incredibly good. Speaking so we had of, some terrible news. Terrible news. Yes, we're going to get to the terrible news because there's two things I want to talk about right away. First of all, okay. I want you to go to iTunes and give us a review. Yes. Because we always Since wait till here. the end to talk about this, and we should talk about it at the beginning when people are listening. Go to iTunes, please, and give us a review. And number two, as much as you don't want me to talk about it, we're going to talk about it because it's a big thing that's happening this week, and we need to talk about your new group on Facebook, Garage Brand. Garage Brand Live. Garage Brand Live. Uh, Gary has a new group on Facebook called Garage Brand Live. He will be doing weekly. Will it be every week or several times a week, unless it's Christmas or something. Probably like I have a. a it's going to be mostly every Monday, unless I got something going on. Like the first week of December, my wife's supposed to give birth, so I might might miss a week then. <laughs> Priorities, Gary. <laughs> I know the show must go on. Right. Yeah. It's it's going to be a weekly live show on Facebook. It's only going to air live in the group. Um, and it's all based on um, helping and doing being a live show for uh, creative entrepreneurs, marketers, small businesses, not just photographers, but anybody who wants to be involved in it because we're going to bring on experts in all different fields onto the show and interview them and uh, help people, you know, do the, the ugly, ugly, stinky business side of the, you know, of the entrepreneurial business world, which is, you know, the business stuff. So we're going to try and make it fun, but it'll be every week, hope, most of the time, unless something happens. Yeah. So it's Facebook Live, so it's video. Right. And mm-hmm. now, are your guests going to be live with you in studio all the time, or are you working out a remote thing? Actually, that's interesting because we're going to have pre-recorded segments. Uh, the first segment is going to be called Smart People, and it's going to be two to four minute pre-recorded segment from looking, a contributor. Looking for my invitation to the Smart People? Uh, <laughs> somehow, let me just... Looking I'm going to send some papers you a sc- on my desk. Obviously, that that invitation. I'm going to send lost. you a screen cap because I have a I have a notes file going. I, mean, I would think that pe- uh, first the first uh, invitation for a segment called Smart People, only only sexy people would have perhaps had the letter coming my way faster than the Smart People uh, segment of your show. Thanks. <clears throat> okay. All right. Okay. Your invitation's in the mail. Just relax. Oh no no. I, I, Damage is done. <laughs> I know how you really feel. So this I, so is wait a minute, what you were being you're... weird about. This well, is yeah, why you're no. being weird. What were, you, what were you saying though? Wait a minute. So you're gonna. So like that's gonna be like pre-recorded bits. You're having different people submit things. Right. Yeah. So I, I can push live. I can push a pre-recorded video into the live stream through the software that I'm using. So in the beginning of the show, we're gonna have a, a segment called Smart People, and it's gonna be two to four minutes on a particular topic. Like here's a huge mistake that I see most people making um, with their search engine optimization, or here, here's a really cool piece of software that you can use to help you manage your schedule and stuff like that. That's all, and that's gonna be presented by people who are not me, because the the whole point of the show is I'm the host, not the expert, and I'm gonna bring in smart people to uh to help with that and then the show is also going to feature a guest every week and that'll either be live via skype or when possible live in my studio with me so that's uh it's going to be a mix of that along with some other cool stuff got some giveaways and cool sponsors giving stuff to the show and 
the group's actually gaining some pretty good momentum right now. We're pushing 1,500 members of the group, in the, and the group was started about three days ago. So that was pretty cool. Um, and, anyway, you worked so out, and you worked out how to do a Skype interview and have it at the same time stream live to Facebook? Yes. What program are you using for that? For there's, the- a really, there's a couple of them, um, and I'm still kind of testing a few. You can use Adobe Flash Live Media Encoder. Um, which does a lot of really cool stuff, but it is also no longer supported by Adobe. Like you can still download it and use it, and it does a lot of really cool stuff. In fact, the IPC Live that you were hosting is done through Adobe Flash Live Media Encoder. See, I pay no that attention sounded. to anything technical. Right. <laughs> which is which is kind of actually during the IPC when you were doing that, I started talking to the crew um, and finding out Travis and Elise and asking them kind of how they were doing it. And so that started the ball rolling, and I started looking into how to do a live stream into Facebook. And then there's um, ODP, which is another one. There's Wirecast. There's Ecamm Live. There are a bunch. And I'm testing a few out, and the show is going to air October 30th at 1 p.m. in the group. So just search on Facebook, Garage Brand Live with Gary Hughes, and you can ask to join the group. And I'll probably let you in unless you have a picture of a sexy woman and tells me your Facebook profile is only two weeks old, in which case... I'll probably not allow you into the group. October 30th is a month from now. Yes. Oh, okay. I was thinking it was like next week. No, no, no. It, the, we're having a lot of stuff leading up to it. going to be giveaways. and, and like uh, all, We're doing a giveaway today. As a matter of fact, we're doing some live stuff interaction, building the group, coupon codes, all kinds of discounts and fun stuff. We're trying to create a fun atmosphere in the group, and the show is actually going to air live for the first time on October 30th at 1 p.m. And uh, what's the name of the group on Facebook where people can sign up? Garage Brand Live. Okay, got it. All right, so now that we've done that thing that uh, uh, sometimes people hate, that we've promoted like crazy at the beginning of our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, every podcast I listen to does that, by the way. They always do the ad reads and the sponsors and stuff at the beginning. Right. Because nobody listens at the end. We were talking about this right before we went on the air that I, I was listening. Uh, I listened to a great podcast called The Weekly Planet. It's all like comic book movies and video games and nerdy stuff. And um, at the end of the podcast, I've never I realized I've been listening to this podcast for two years and I've never heard the sign off at the end. <laughs> no. As soon, as soon as they start doing the like reading letters from which is the segment they do right before they finish, I usually switch over to another podcast. Sure, sure. And so, and I realized that since you were absolutely right to do everything at the beginning because, you know, people have probably never heard me see, say the really interesting thing I say at the end of every episode. That's true. I, I know I tuned it out <laughs> when you say it live. Uh, let's, Thanks, man. Let's talk, about, um, let's talk about Hef. Man, yeah, that was tough. So Hef and I, it wasn't that tough for me. I mean... Come on, the guy was ninety-one. Have you seen Hef? I mean, we knew Hef was coming. Yeah, he wasn't. You know, he wasn't going to go to a hundred. It's not. You know, like Don Rickles was still performing in Vegas when he passed. You know, but Hef, come on, Hef was not performing for anybody at this point. Yeah, it's not. It's not like he was doing a lot of TV appearances. Yeah, so anything. we knew he had to go. But but as a cultural icon uh, in America, there just are a few bigger than Hugh Hefner in Playboy magazine. I agree with that. And you know what? Whatever you think about. Playboy magazine aside, whatever you think about Hugh Hefner personally aside, you cannot deny that the 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 the, the icon status of this guy, like he's just no. one of the for how many decades for f- five decades at least, you know, and it's 2017 right now, and when and, and I think Playboy's been around since when, right, and you know, and it, there's always there was always the the dichotomy of of the the 
the Playboy philosophy and the fact that Hef booked black performers at the Playboy Club uh, when no one else was doing it and uh, had uh, black performers on his television show when no one else was doing it and defending Lenny Bruce. And you see all of that. And with that comes the, he, he believed that uh, we shouldn't be so sexually repressed and it's okay for a, uh, for a woman to enjoy sex. That's great. But at the same time, he also objectified women. <laughs> right. He also was objectifying the women. So it's always that, there. You, it's like no one's, I don't, I don't want to say nobody's perfect, but he did a lot of good. But at the same time, he also, there's no doubt, was a Randy guy who just liked yeah. to look at naked women. And so, you know, you, I don't know, you have to go back and forth. But, but just as an icon, I, if you, by the way, I think it's on Amazon, there's a docudrama about Hef's, like six or seven episodes long that's, you know, a, a documentary, but also a drama showing scenes from his life that's really good. And yeah, and, yeah, and really interesting when you see the, the history of, of Playboy magazine and the things that uh, the magazine did, and, and, uh, and really interesting. But what I find interesting now, what I love to do now is, go back and look at the pictures over the years and really pick them apart, the lighting, the posing. Um, and I sent you one the other day. Yep. I'd be willing to do that for science. For science. For science, yes. I do it. Science. Um, but it's amazing uh, looking at some of the pictures now, especially from, say, like the 80s, uh, how overblown the post-processing is. Oh, well, especially since, you know, even if you go back to the – the, the mid late nineties and early two thousands and digital retouching was really rel- really new right um, and then even before that retouching was literally you know adjusting the negative or creating a print and painting on yeah. the print what they called airbrushing uh, yeah. and and the, and what's funny is we just a few weeks ago we were talking about the um, because of competition how you're seeing now images where every image shot in a studio it looks like there's a separate light just on the person's face. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and Playboy very much. If you go look at the centerfolds, every centerfold, the model's face is at least two thirds to a stop brighter than everything else in the scene. And I think there was a time back in the day when they actually would have a separate light on her face when they shot it. But then eventually oh, yeah. it just became post processing. And it's so obvious. I mean, it's just yes. so obvious the face is flat and two dimensional and completely devoid of any wrinkle or possible mark anywhere. And it's just so obvious that it's been processed to the nines. Um, and it's funny because at the time it was the best photography in the world. And now when you look back at it, you go, uh, you know, and it makes you wonder what's going to be the next thing that we look back at and go, eh, um, our own work probably. <laughs> yeah. But what do you think? What do you think is the thing that we're seeing today and doing today? That will be the first thing that, that 15 or 20 years from now, photographers will go, oh, my God. I think digital compositing. Really? I do. I, do. I think that um, the, the digital compositing of now is going it, to – it's gotten so much better. In fact, I've looked back at images that I competed with in the International Photographic Competition and stuff. I have images that, like, that, I, that, a bit, that are in the, the loan collection book from 10 years ago that wouldn't even merit today at the competition right. because it's so uh, – but it was new, and anything that you could come up with is exciting. And I've seen images that would have been won everything hands down all over the place um, you know, six or seven years ago that are getting kind of lower scores now because it's just become so normal. But um, it's really interesting. Friend of the show, Randy Van Dynen, posted something on Facebook this week, and it was a, it was a p- composite that he did 12 years ago of, sh- of sneakers turning into feet. Yeah, I saw that. And, and, you know, it was, and I thought that was really interesting that, um, to see the difference between what was, a, what was a composite then and now. And it wasn't bad by any stretch. It just means that um, 
I think it's one of those things that where it becomes a, a really trendy to do it, and then we it gets so much better. So what kind of compositing sort of are you talking about, though? I mean, when you say compositing is going to become, we're going to look back and go, ooh. Are we going to look back because we're going to, go, we're going to say that's poor compositing? Or is the whole idea of, uh, you know, uh, here's a uh, here's a bear with half the body of a man who's riding on a unicycle, is the whole idea of making a picture like that going to become, you know, oh, my God, that's so 2017? Well, I just think that sort of the hyper-realism, you know, I think uh-huh. looking at, th- you know, it, it, the technique, compositing is never going anywhere. I mean, it is the, one of the most valuable parts of professional digital photography to be able to pull out a background or drop in a sky or swap ahead. I mean, compositing is, is here for life. It's never going anywhere. But the whole, you know, creating sort of a fantasy work out of composites, not necessarily that because you'll still always see that in movie posters and promos. And, and that's sort of a generally accepted place for a long time that that's been there. But just the, um, the way it's put together, you know, people still will do it, but we're going to laugh at how bad it looked and we thought it looked good at the time, like hair in the 80s. Right, right. Okay, yeah. <laughs> all right. Yeah, like okay. if you see a picture of your of your of your mom from the you know from the sixties, you know that's speaking of. I posted this on Facebook this week. I've been watching that Vietnam War documentary, the Ken Burns Vietnam War documentary, and the hair in the seventies on some of these women, the bouffant hairdos. Oh, yes. my, it, it's like cartoon Marge Simpson. Unbelievable the hair. Worth yes. watching just to hear. But speaking of that Vietnam documentary, if you haven't seen it, it's been on PBS. And if it's like any other documentary that Ken Burns has ever done, I'm sure they're going to rerun it a million times. And eventually it will be on Netflix. But one of the wonderful things about this documentary is the iconic photos from the Vietnam War. The, the photo of the uh, um, <coughs> Viet Cong uh, man being shot in the head in the street. The photo of the uh, yes. young Vietnamese woman, girl running naked from a napalm attack. Not only do they show these photos, but they talk about them. They talk with the photographer of the photos if they can. So they tell the story behind these photos, which, of course, I found fascinating and totally unexpected in this document. I thought it was just, you know, crazy. I just, you know, how much time do they have? They can't do everything. They can't talk about everything. Now, I figured they'll show this photo, but they won't necessarily go into it at all. They do. They talk about, That's you awesome. know. Yeah, like like the guy, why he was there, who he worked for. Here's an interview with him. Here's what he did immediately afterwards. And and, uh, AP said that they couldn't run this photo, so he sent it directly to – he had someone else sent directly to AP New York, and they said, yes, we're running it. It became the definitive photo of the war, and et cetera, et cetera. So from a just purely photographer's standpoint, it's worth watching the documentary just to see them talk about these old photos and to see all the um, unbelievable war photography. Yeah, it's uh, just, uh, Ken Burns has has been doing this for such a long time that if you or if you use an Apple computer, um, and you create a slideshow using any of the Apple proprietary software, there's a button for the Ken Burns effect. Yeah, it's making a still photo move or zoom in or zoom out. Yes. I mean yes. he as a as a documentarian he has always relied heavily on on powerful imagery and using stills specifically m- moving stills around in film and he's he's just brilliant. Everything he's done is pretty much awesome. I tell you something else too. Looking at the old photos, there's so many old black and white photos. Um, I, I mean, is it my imagination or was the dynamic range just better? It is with film. It was for a lot. Oh yeah, definitely. Because when you look at the black and white photos from the Vietnam War, there's just it, it just seems so. The dynamic range just seems so great. And I think if I took that with my camera, it would probably be just a little bit muddled. 
or I, you know, I'd have to go. I'd have to. I'd have to put it into some software and do some actions on it or whatever to get it yeah, to look black and white. F- yeah. film prints from back then had that such pop to them. They really. Yeah, did. exactly. You know, and, and those. And, um, and you know, they weren't. They weren't posted, run through Nick. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know? no, no, no. That, you know. the headshot that you posted of one of the uh, Vietnamese soldiers that looked like a beautiful yes. shot. That was amazing. That was, a, and that was, a, and that was a North Vietnam. That was a member of the Viet Cong or the regular <laughs> army. That that was like his headshot. And I think that's the thing that struck struck me the most. One of the most, that struck me most about the documentary was for some, you know, for some reason, me when I look think about the Vietnam War, and of course I was too young, for the, way too young for the Vietnam War. I was barely born. Um, you you always think of it as you know the American soldiers are fighting these guerrillas in in the black pajamas in the jungle. And you forget that they had cities and technology and all. Yeah, they had good pictures too. They had headshots. They had uniforms. They had all the stuff that we had and everyone else had. They were not some backwater civilization. Uh, and nothing is more evident of that when you see a, a picture from 1968 of some guy in his army uniform and it looks like it was shot down at Merle Norman. Yeah. <laughs> it's it pretty beautiful. There's like pretty four beautiful lights shot, on the guy, actually, yeah. <laughs> you know? And you're like, they had photographers in, in North Vietnam. Well, of course they had photographers in North yeah. Vietnam. Of course they had people who knew how to work a camera. You know, what do you think? It was all just rice patties and water buffalo. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it was. Uh, I was quite, uh, quite blown away by the level of quality photography coming out of North Vietnam in the late 60s. Yeah, that's it's it's pretty amazing. You know, there are some some of the the, the veteran photographers set, not army veterans, but photographers have been around a long time that do pine for the you know talk, they they uh they sort of wax philosophical about the way the photography industry used to be and and there is something to it. You did in a lot of ways have to be more precise um and 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 nail stuff a little bit more. But I think that some of that's an illusion. Here's an interesting idea. I think a lot of photographers had a really tough transition to digital photography at the end of the 90s, beginning of the new millennium. Because here's my here's my theory, and you can tell me what you think about this. If you're a pro photographer, you're shooting weddings, you're shooting portraits, you're shooting. You have to send your film to a lab, unless you were your own lab, and they would process the images, color correct, you know, produce proofs that they adjusted, and you always paid for that. I remember my parents back in the day had a, their lab bill was their biggest expense every single month. They had to pay their lab a ton of money every month, and they send you back color corrected and exposure corrected photos. Basically, corrected for levels and density and all that stuff. And so you could legitimately be running a photography business and never really know that you're not nailing it <laughs> in camera. Yeah. And then, and then all, of a sudden, all of a sudden, digital comes along and you instantly see the photo that you just took pop up and you go, well, there's something wrong with this camera. There's- clearly, <laughs> clearly there's something wrong here. Clearly, work. clearly it's not as good as my Leica. Uh, yeah, that's but yeah, right. yeah, that's I know I'm I'm with you. That makes perfect sense to me. I mean, I don't know if it's true, but yeah, because they only saw their pictures after they had already been retouched by a professional or at least color corrected yeah, and, color, and yeah. balanced for density and stuff. You know, they don't necessarily a lab wouldn't unless you ordered a specific print, they wouldn't necessarily go in and do all the burning and dodging and the George Harrell stuff, but they would ex- correct the exposure and film latitude and exposure, depending on whether it was highlight or shadow, was a good two to three stops, easy, sometimes more, depending on the film stock and depending on the media, the format of the film. Like you could really suck at getting exposures. Like you could be really bad at it and never really know. You could be in that circumstance. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, digital comes along, and you go, well, digital, it's just not for me. Just can't. 
nope, it's not the same. Not the same. It's like, well, because you sucked and you didn't know it. You have no <laughs> idea that everything you're turning in from your studio is a stop and a half underexposed. Yeah, and every time the, the, the lab gets your shipment, that same technician who processes your crappy photos is like, <sighs> Here we go. (laughs) Should I tell them? Hey, boss, should we tell them that they're underexposing everything? No, no, no. You don't want to take a chance that that'll make them mad. Just just fix it and send it back to them. I remember, though, I did get feedback once. I I relayed this uh, theory to a former uh, guest and and also a a current friend of the show, Mr. Richard Sturdivant, the one and only. Um, And I I explained this theory to him once a while back, and he said, Nah, man, my lab, they'd send me back whether it was too high or too low. All my prints came back great density. <laughs> or something like that. But he basically said the point. Yeah, I know you're not suggesting I would do something wrong. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying I was, I was the best at getting exposures on the, in the whole world. But, but if, you uh, if, you, say, if you want to say it, I won't, I won't stop you. If you want to say it, go ahead. <laughs> I, can't, I can't get my voice down there. <laughs> no, but that guy is amazing. But the point was... Um, <laughs> That that he said that his lab would put the notes on the on the proofs whether or not that they would tell you oh, whether your exposures know. were high or All low right, or too light right. or too dark and stuff like that. So I thought that so I don't know I wasn't I was only a kid in my parents' business and I never really knew enough about it to know whether that was going on. I just know that any pro photographer that was shooting on the regular had a unless they had their own lab had a hell of a lab bill every month. Well, I here's another thing. Um, watching that documentary made me think about, and that's. A good example is, you know, the image of the Vietnamese uh, girl running from the napalm attack and she's naked. Yes. You know the image I'm talking about. Yes. That image, um, there were several photographers there, including video or film, I guess. Mm-hmm. So when they talk about that, there's a lot of film footage. There's actual footage of the attack, footage of the people coming, footage of all of this stuff, footage of him taking the picture. This is all video footage and other pictures before they finally get to that picture, which became an iconic photo and, and won the Pulitzer Prize. And I find myself asking myself a lot, like even with my own family, um, I don't shoot much video. I'm still a photographer. I don't shoot much video, and I sometimes think I should shoot more video because my wife shot video of the girls when they were babies and stuff, and, and I, I see that video every once in a while now, and I really love it, and I think I, I need to be shooting more video because film captures, but it doesn't do what video does. And then I see something like this documentary and you watch the video and and like, wow, this is interesting. But then when they put the picture up and you spend some time looking at it, you just seem to absorb so much more from the still image than you do from the video image. And I think it's because the video image is a series of images, but they're coming by at 60 frames per second and then they're gone. Whereas with the still image, you're faced with, okay, I see it and now it's not going away. And so I have to start looking now at each individual person in the photo. And it really forces you to, to focus on that moment. Right. I, I just, I, you know, I, when I, when I, you know, the more I watched it, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, the times that when you think photography is in trouble, you know, because video, because of the GoPro, because everybody shoots video with their phone all the time now. And I'm reminded that while great video is great video, it still can't replace great photography. Great photography still... Uh, is there's something mesmerizing about it that you can't get away from? Plus, you know? editing video is a huge pain in the butt. Yes, it is a huge, <laughs> it's like, a huge and the pain files in the butt. are enormous. But we you know, but when you watch it and you see all this video of everything that happened at that moment, and then finally they come to that picture, bank, you know, or it's like the same thing with uh, tons of video and everything from Kent State, and they finally come to that picture, that famous picture from Kent State, 
and they hold on it. And you're like, yeah, that's what I've been waiting for. That, that, that picture. That's what I want. That, that shows me more than all that other stuff you just did. For some reason, this one still image conveys more to me than the moving images you showed leading up to it. And I just find that to be very interesting that even, to, even today that that's still the case. Because you would just think that video would always trump photography when it comes to reporting the news. Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying, but I mean, for as an example, I think about my wedding photos, and we had uh, the great Susan Stripling was my wedding photographer, and she did an amazing job. We also had some friends do some video, and so we, I, I never really thought about how about video until we got one um, by our friends who had a video company, and so it was professionally done. They just happened to be friends of ours, and I always thought that man, the photos would just be so much more important to me than the video. But I got to say that video is kind of equal status. Like we bust that video out at least once or twice a year and watch it with friends and family. You know, it's like a good 25 minute condensed version of of the wedding day, which is pretty wild. But um, yeah, I I think that but they do have their own kind of magic to them. You know, I really think that they're they're, they're great for different reasons, which is why if you were to completely go but like left brain technology you would think that once video existed that we wouldn't need stills anymore right you would think that but i think part of the problem is that video goes by too fast with photography you you stop and you consider and you talk and you discuss and you and you think but with with video a thing oh oh, you're on to the next thing you know here's more cake here's more cake you don't have time to really think about how good that last bite of cake was because here's another piece of cake and well here here's i've never been to an art gallery for a video exhibit right you know, I've I've gone to the National Portrait Gallery. Every every place I travel, if there's a portrait if there's a portrait gallery, I go. Right. You know, I I do. I, I just something we always do when we travel. I, I've never even looked up to see if there's such a thing as a an art gallery with a bunch of video installations. Well, they have they have some artists who work in video. Oh sure, no doubt. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just I think it's interesting, and it and it it. Uh, it reassures me, uh, you know, when I when I start to get worried about the GoPro generation and that, you know, no, photography is not going anywhere. Yeah, that is, you know, every we've talked about this a bunch of times on the show. Every single times a new technology comes out. I just saw this posted in um, online and then I reposted it in a headshot group that I'm in on Facebook. And it was basically this. Um, did, did you see this? It was a, uh, it was a booth, like a headshot, self-contained headshot booth. Yes. It's got, got like the built-in ring light thing and you basically, you can put it in the lobby of a building and it's, you know, get a professional headshot for 20 bucks and it'll take your picture and it's just a solid white background lit with kind of a flat ring light. So everybody looks good. And I mean, they, it puts out for 20 bucks, it puts out very decent headshots in a little automated booth. And so every time something like that comes out, people go, oh, my God, this is the beginning of the end. I just feel like photography's always been sort of under attack by the progress of society, you know? Like when it was – when it, when color film came out, that was – that you know, was the, that, was a, that was it. It was the end. And then it uh, – and when digital came out, it was the end. And then Photoshop, it's the end. It's always the end. It's, it's, this is the beginning of the end. And unless the end is taking place over 200 years, which is the life of photography, you know, it's probably not going to completely go away. Although the technology that exists is m- going to make it more difficult to stand out, to give clients a reason to pay you more money. And in a way, I think that's a good and a bad thing. It's a good, it's a bad thing because 
a lot of people are going to not be able to be competitive unless they up their game. And it's good because the people who are good and, and not only good at photography, but good at marketing themselves and getting out there, it's going to be a little easier for you to stand out from the crowd to be able to go, well, this guy takes a good headshot, but I can get one that's pretty close in this headshot booth for 20 bucks. Or this guy does incredible works of art. Everybody looks like they're having a great time. Everybody looks their best, you know, because nobody walking into a photo booth, nobody's going to give you a wardrobe consult. Well, it's and not just it's posing, too. Uh, you right. can't you posing is a, is, is a big thing. I, I think now more than ever, posing is important if you're a professional photographer. I struggle with my posing. I'm better than I used to be, but I'm still not where I want to be. Constantly having to remind myself by asking you and others. OK, again, you know, show me a, show me. You know, you got to explain it to me. You can't just I can't you can't just say this is how you pose a woman. You have to explain it to me in detail why you put your weight on the back foot, why you put your tilt your head towards your shoulder, why you turn a little bit this way or a little bit that way because that's the only way I can absorb it. But the people who are good at that, the people who really know how to put you in a pose instantly where you look your best, that's something that no automation can do. Absolutely, yeah. You know, I, I the posing is probably I think one if if you did a little survey in the in the in the on the Facebook page and like. So um, why? Uh, what is the thing that you, you think you struggle with the most? If you took out business topics and actually making money at photography, just stuck it to the art of photographing people, I think posing would be... I don't, I don't think so, and I think that's the problem. I think, I think the question, it's always, no, lighting. Lighting, I struggle with lighting, and I think, yeah, but lighting is, you know, uh, I don't think lighting is that hard because there, you only need to learn a couple, a couple of ways to light and you're in pretty good yeah. shape, you know, but posing everybody's different you know you know you watch to the to the people that you watch gary do 15 people in a row with their headshots and you will see just posing headshot posing at its zenith it's amazing because it's none of them will have a bad photo not a single one of them will have a photo where you look at and you go ah shoulders should have been turned a little bit more or whatever every one of them Every one of them, he's got it every single time. It's a joy to watch, you know, and uh, Aww, it is. It really so is. It's true, and <laughs> and um, you know, and I can get it, but not like you can. Of course, of course, I haven't shot a million headshots away. Yeah, you know, I, I shoot about four thousand headshots a year, and that's not yeah. an exaggeration. So, right. I mean, it's a lot of it is doing it over and over and over. But here's but the just thing: having good have... light, having good lighting on a photograph, it does not mean you have a good photograph. Right, yeah, put your back to a big window. You'll probably be fine with the lighting, <laughs> but can you make the person look? good with their posing yeah and and i don't think we spend enough time talking about it you know i i really don't uh, what if that what if the headshot booth uh, the aforementioned headshot booth had a little screen inside of it like an led screen that showed you pictures like okay and had little lights on the ground put your feet here right and then it gave you like instructions put your weight on this foot bend this knee and then it, it i mean this is technology that exists it could go it could show you a 50 percent opacity headshot of somebody on the screen with you overlaid underneath it, and it'll be like, get your shoulders and your head into this position before we take the shot. I mean, it could do – conceivably, that's, that could happen. My like problem is I don't see how this thing makes money over time because you put it in, and maybe there's people who need headshots, and they get them, but it's not like a Coke machine. You don't need a headshot every day at lunch. Right, but what if you have a big company like Amazon or Google, and they pay, you know, let's say – they, they wouldn't have to necessarily pay anything. They just let, like an ATM machine, they just let them put it in the lobby and then right. people serve stuff. And, you know, they're hiring hundreds, hiring and firing hundreds of people a month. 
And instead of having to keep bringing a photographer in to do the photos for the ID badges or even keep one on staff, they have a machine. And it's definitely good enough for the internal files and definitely good enough for their security badges. And that just sits in the lobby. Come on down to the lobby, get your quick headshot, then we'll print your ID badge. Like that is conceivably something that could that Okay, could, that but could let's be. say that's the case. It's 100 people a month, 20 bucks a head. That's $2,000 a month. And with I don't know how it works, but with most machines you put in somebody's building, you split it. Right. So at a place that is getting 100 headshots a month, that machine's only generating $1,000 a month. I don't know if that's good money or not versus, say, a you know machine full of snacks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> what kind of snacks? I'm just saying, you know, $1,000 a month for a, for a, I don't know. Of course, here's the upside. The machine full of snacks, you've got overhead on the cost of the snacks. And well, if it, yeah, yeah. I There's no overhead so. on the cost of, of this machine, so it's pure profit. Well, I mean, imagine if you owned a photography business and you owned 10 of these machines, and then you could rent them out just like ATM right. machines or arcade machines to different companies, then you're, you got, you, it's, it's like having 10 photographers working for you that could all pull a decent headshot just sitting in the lobby of this building. And not only do people who work there can do it, but anybody who comes there for an appointment and they're all dressed up and they go, well, if 20 oh, bucks, hey. what do I got to lose? I'll give it a shot. Yeah, I'm all dressed up. And you up. could have... If you had 10 of these machines out generating $1,000 a month, you know, for you, then that's basically a – that's your career. <laughs> I mean, what if you had 20 of those? I mean, you don't yeah. need to do anything else. Yeah, yeah. So I, it, I agree. It, I think, I, but I think, I think it's the $100 of uh, – the 100 headshots a month, it would be hard to hit. You would have to have a, a building where there was 100 people a month being right. hired and fired. Well, that's the thing is it's not um, – I don't think anything like that will replace the luxury market or even sort of the upper middle, but it will definitely – It'll definitely get realtors. Real- yeah, <laughs> yes, it'll, yes. It'll the realtors will like, love it. Realtor, realtors would never hire another photographer again. No realtor ever would yeah. ever do it. Yes. You know? so that's, yes. uh, but, yeah, I've never gone after the realtor market. There's just no point. You, I, I've tried. I have, I have two, two clients. In fact, last year we worked for a, a, a very large national realty company that has an office here locally. And... Um, we did an event for them where we did headshots, and it was a miserable, miserable damn nightmare. And I have a couple of small real estate firms that are local to Orlando that send me people in from time to time. But by and large, realtors are independent contractors, so they're not really interested in paying much for their photos. And so even even the companies that I do work for, when they have three people come in, every single one of those people pays individually. The company never pays for everybody's right. headshot. Right. And so I think that's kind of one of the reasons it's not as big a moneymaker because you have to do a lot of legwork to get 100 realtors. All I got to do to get 100 attorneys is get one law firm, and the law firm pays for 100 headshots. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Right. So, I mean, it's a little bit it's a little bit of a different market. But I think, you know what, kudos to the person who invented that machine. And it's it, it'll it'll clear out the bottom end of the if it if it gets big, it'll clear out the bottom end of the market, which is fine. I'm good with that. Like that's technology. And when technology changes, which is inevitable, you're going to have to change the way you do something in order to continue to make money. That's just how business is. All right. Anything else you need to talk about this week? Um, you know, nothing huge. Some, uh, you know, speaking stuff coming up in January. I will be in London at the SWPP convention, um, doing a class on headshots and a class on marketing. And those things will be happening there in the January. If you go to SWPP.co.uk, I should be there and you get all that information. And in Febtober, I will, or February, I will be speaking at the, uh, Photo Pro Expo in um, Cincinnati, and that's going to be really cool. Just go to photoproexpo.com, and all that information is there. 
All right. If you want to find Gary online, it's HughesFioretti.com. Yes, it is. You can find me at BlueRayPerry.com. Gary's new group is Garage Brand Live on Facebook, correct? Yes, that's it. So it's Facebook.com slash Garage Brand Live? It's Facebook.com slash groups slash Garage Brand ah, Live. Ah. Or you can just do a search for Garage Brand Live or Gary Hughes, and I'll, it'll probably yeah. pop up. And he has just a wonder, uh, wonderful logo. It is. It is. It's got a cartoon me on it. So yes, but also I detect a little uh, a shade of Star Wars, uh, Empire Strikes Back kind yes. of uh, logo in there. Did I pick yes. up on that? I did pick you up nailed on that. It. Oh, okay, yeah. because Empire Strikes Back is undisputably the best movie ever made. Of course, absolutely. And so, and my love of Star Wars is built into the logo a little bit, and uh, and I'm pretty cool with that actually. Yes, and just like in that movie, Gary also smells bad on the inside. I do. No doubt. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, you can find us online. Go to facebook.com slash photobombpodcast. You can find our website at photobombpodcast.com. You can email us at questions at photobombpodcast. We will see you back here next week. See you later. And if you stayed till the end, wasn't that worth it? Yes. Yes. <laughs>